0: This week, I gave Evan and Michael the high hat. And since I'm a schnook, they made me watch Miller's Crossing to find out what's the rumpus. Welcome back to How Did
1: You Miss This? A show where we attempt to fill the not-so-shallow graves of our movie-watching history. I'm Evan Toller hickey and with me, as always, Michael Hansen and Chris Shane. And today, we are going to be discussing The Coen Brothers' Night*. 1990 film Miller's Crossing. This is one of the Coen brothers, sort of more slept on movies. But that said, it is uh, something that The Guardian has called one of the 25 top crime movies of all time. It's one of Time Magazine's 100 best movies since Time Magazine began. And it's a gangster film, a genre that I know that Chris loves. So, Chris, you got to tell us,
0: how did you miss this? Yeah, I um don't know. I honestly don't know that I was even aware this movie existed until it came up on our you know, list of things to watch and and you guys pushed it up to the top. Um so I mean, I'm aware of the Coen brothers obviously. In fact, we're going to be watching one of their movies that is one of my favorites uh in not too long, but like wasn't aware that this existed and I will say given some of the other gangster movies that came out the same year, um, it's easy to see how this would have, you know, disappeared through the cracks. But I think both of you have already seen this movie, right? You guys both decided that this was something you wanted me to watch. So, like, what's the circumstance for you, Evan, in seeing this?
1: Well, this was a movie that I saw uh, probably about... 20 years ago, uh, maybe a bit over that. And uh, I I think it may have been one of the first Coen Brothers films I ever saw. And so it has a real special place in my heart um, in that respect. And also it is, I think, an absolutely beautiful film. It is a Good-looking film. It's full of great performances. It's got uh, some some very strange bits um, that borderline on absurdity that make me laugh. And uh, yeah, I've i just I I really like the Coen Brothers. I really like this film.
2: What about you, Michael? So for me, I I saw this I think before I realized that the Coen Brothers were the Coen Brothers. I'd seen Racing Arizona way before. Uh, but I don't think I ever made the connection. It was only later that I kind of saw it in the, the context of the, the greater sort of their collection of movies. Uh, this was a favorite from day one. I've watched this many times over the years. Um, I love everything about this movie and it has not changed. Spoiler alert has not changed uh, over the years. I still think it's as good as I did uh, the first time I saw it.
0: Yeah, I mean, we kind of touched on it. This is the Coen Brothers' third movie that they wrote and directed. Um, maybe before we get into like how we feel about the movie, we can talk about how this movie came to be. And I think it's a interesting trajectory because, you know, as Michael said, you know, this is early Coen Brothers, um, and I, I think there's definitely a sense of like this tying into kind of an arc of stuff that they were making. But yeah, they'd come off Blood Simple and uh, Raising Arizona. Um, before this movie and this is their third creation and in trying to write this movie apparently this the whole thing came to them out of this idea of just like a black hat blowing through uh, a field and they framed an entire movie around that simple kind of visual which I mean you see throughout this movie Uh, and the wild thing for me about this movie is that you know they had the opportunity to uh, uh, direct Batman after the success of their, their first two movies. And they passed up uh, on the uh, Michael Keaton Batman to go ahead and make this, which for me is, is just uh, wild. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's a, 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 one of those amazing bits of trivia and, and sort of a, a, uh, Alternate timeline where the Tim Burton's Batman doesn't exist, but the Coen Brothers Batman exists, and that is a very different Batman in my mind. Uh, so I'm I'm glad that they went the way they they did on this, and and this kind of begins to set up. Um, that kind of of feeling that I have about the Coen brothers that they do, like they do a serious film and then they do kind of a less serious film and then they do a serious film and then they do a less serious film. And like, this is that sort of serious film, uh, you know, that they, that they do after raising Arizona. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, they, they are obviously fans of, um, you know, the gangster genre and the noir genre. Um, there's, uh, there's a, uh, Dashiell Hammett book called the glass key, which, uh, apparently a lot of this is sort of, um, cribbed from to, to give some of the inspiration for it. Um, they shot, This mostly in New Orleans um, over a a three month period, January to April 1989, mainly because New Orleans still had a whole lot of old looking neighborhoods. And that really, you know, the feel of that definitely comes across. It cost them about between I guess estimates are like 12 to fifteen million dollars. Um, the 14 million dollars, maybe the Cohen brothers says it cost less, but it did not do well at the box office. Let's say it, it cost 14 million dollars in budget. It pulls in like five million. At the box office. um, Comes out just after Goodfellas. Uh, So maybe there had been saturation on uh, on gangster
0: films and right before The Godfather 3 comes out. Yeah. And not just like after Goodfellas. It came out less than two weeks after Goodfellas. So it's pretty easy to see. How people might have, uh, you know, missed this, regardless of like how good a movie uh, many people think this is, it's easy to see in the shadow of Goodfellas coming out two weeks before, where somebody's like, "So you want to see a mob movie? Well, yeah. Which one? Uh, well, it's not that hard a choice, I think, for a lot of people. Where you have Scorsese making one of the, you know, best movies." ever uh because that thing was a rollaway behemoth when it when it did come out so uh, i mean it's easy to see how um i think in for a lot of folks you could have missed this on on the initial uh initial run um but i think you know one of the interesting things is um you know it certainly met some positive reviews uh i think a lot of the reviews were um good though maybe not Uh, Like, great. I think a lot of people were praising it for um, how the movie looks um though maybe a little bit more criticism for the story the complexity of the story and some of that kind of thing in a a lot of the reviews um no award nominations uh come out for this but this does pop up uh in a number of places as you kind of mentioned evan in you know uh top crime movies and and uh some you know a lot of people's favorite movie lists uh of all time this thing sits with a a 93 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. There's so certainly a lot of good reviews. Um, and I'm, I'm curious for each of you
2: revisiting this movie. I think you're both still in love with it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. hundred percent. Like for me, for me, this is uh, it's, we talked about this in a previous movie because of the setting. Um, I think it's aged extremely well it doesn't depend on special effects it doesn't depend on sort of something that was so time specific uh, let's say in the the 80s that then it's kind of aged uh, so for me that's all held up and i think also because uh i i think it has like a real homage to these um uh, Bacal, um uh, humphrey Bogart type of movies the dialogue the setting and they go so deep into it i think that that also is so um, ageless or timeless. So I, I, yeah, I just, I continue to like this. I think I, I looked for floss when we went back to look at it now. And I, I just, I, I couldn't find it. I'm, I'm a huge fan.
1: Yeah. I'm with you, Michael. And in fact, I think this movie has gotten better with age. I think that, that this film is such a wonderful, uh, love letter to, noir, uh, and it just it it looks great, it sounds great. Uh it it's just this this movie is is one of those things that presses all of my buttons of like ding ding ding. This is this is a movie that I just thoroughly enjoy through and through. Um Chris, I know you're a, a big fan of the gangster genre. I know that Goodfellas was one of your uh, favorite films ever and you were shocked when I had never seen it and sat me down to watch it uh, once a number of years ago maybe with that was the, uh, the 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 seeds
0: of this podcast yeah yeah exactly little did we know uh yeah I mean I think I think for me this movie was okay um I didn't love this movie because I found some of those um you know, absurdist moments kind of yanked me out of it kind of forcefully. And I was like, it, it zigged uh, at the wrong times. And, I, and I, I felt a little bit of whiplash at points. I, I like, there's just parts that didn't rub me quite the right way for parts of the the characters, the story, um, and like that, that absurdist comedy that comes in at points. Um I thought the movie was okay. For me, I don't know that I would recommend this movie to somebody who hadn't seen it unless you were like, I really love gangster movies, or I really love the Coen brothers or, you know, something like that, where I'd be like, okay, yeah, um, I get it though. That might be there for you, but I think for the average person, this wouldn't be something where I'd be like, oh yeah, you, you, you gotta see this. I was like, it was fine. Uh, but you know, I'm not, I'm not in love. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm really looking forward to discussing, uh, D-
1: just uh, discussing the the ins and outs of of that for you.
0: Yeah, no, I'm I'm going to be looking forward to you know comparing notes with with you guys too, because I think some of the things that you guys may have enjoyed may have been the things where that were rubbing me the wrong way. But I'm, I'm curious for both of you, like it sounds like you guys are both in love with this movie. Is this a movie that you recommend to other
2: folks? I would recommend this to almost everyone, um, except. Again, like this, in some of these movies, the violence thing, you have to be a little bit mindful. There are a lot of parts where it doesn't matter at all. And all of a sudden, you have something that goes a little bit over the top. Um, but I think that this one is an easy one to recommend to pretty much anyone with a couple of kind of like caveats around because it's got the absurdest things, it's very stylized. Um, but I would have no hesitation to recommend this. Yeah,
1: I I agree with you, Michael. I love this movie. This is just one of those like really good looking movies that um, is in the center of a lot of people's Venn diagram. So there's a lot of people who could just come together and like sit down and watch this film and really enjoy it. Um, Even if uh, there are sort of, they have like, pretty disparate tastes. I think there's a lot of things in there for, um, for people who are looking for, um, a very well-crafted, um, kind of a grown up movie. So yeah, I recommend it to
0: people who like well-crafted grown up movies. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's an interesting recommendation technique. So um, I think we'll take a quick break here and we can get into all the stuff uh, that makes up Miller's Crossing on the other side. And welcome back. So we're going to be talking about everything about Miller's crossing. So if you don't want this movie spoiled for you, you should run away faster than Bernie does through the woods. All right. So what's this movie about? So this movie follows uh, Tom Reagan. He's the right hand man to a 1920s crime boss. Uh, And as a gang war is breaking out, Tom kind of manipulates the events to pit both sides against each other uh, without anyone catching on. So, I mean, this movie is, uh, as we're kind of touching on up front, it's a very, um, you know, big tip of the hat, uh, to all the classic, um, gangster movies. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that, that I noticed right off the bat first time watching it is definitely, um, the use of like that, that era of dialogue and slang that they start hitting you with. Um, like just how much does that help kind of pitch you into this, this era of like 1920s gangsters and Tommy guns and prohibition and that whole thing. I love it so much. I, I love the dialogue in this movie so, so much.
1: I love that there's that they're just throwing you directly into really, really heightened and, and slang heavy words and you have to sort of decode it as you go along. And it is an absolute delight to my
2: ear. Yeah. One of the things that I find about not just this movie, but all of of the Coen brothers movies is that they really are consistent. They decide what type of movie they want to make and then they stick with that throughout. So to me, it doesn't matter so much whether they did the uh, slang or not, but they're really consistent in the application of it. And the dialogue has a certain tone throughout. It's very sort of that, like I, I was saying, the Humphrey Bogart type of thing, where there's there's an edge to every interaction back and forth. Uh, guys talking to each other have a certain uh, ring to it, and so the the slang itself doesn't. It's not as important to me as how they do it and they stick to a particular tone throughout. And I think that that is part of the success. It doesn't veer left and right. It sets a tone and it sticks with that tone. And, and I love it for it. I,
0: I will say, seeing this for a first time uh, too. I can definitely, um, for me, uh, you know, looking at some of the other Cohen brothers' movie that that came later and i i look at this and i'm like okay this feels like their first foray into like we're going back in time we're picking a particular group of people with their particular uh, dialogue mannerisms and like you're saying michael like they they go all the way into it similar to how you would see them go into um you know oh brother where art thou or fargo or like these very like specific people in a specific time and we're just going to like make it look feel and sound like that people are going to talk a certain way, behave a certain way. Like I can definitely see that uh, connection. And I, I think it is fun at points where you're like, what, what does what's the rumpus mean? And you get it, but it's also like, really? People said that? Huh. How about that?
1: Yeah. You know, people, well, people say it in the movie anyway, and that's what matters, right? Because the Coen brothers, like to Michael's point, are setting up a very specific, consistent um, world, and so, in doing so, you've got this shared vocabulary. There's nobody in the movie who's like, w- "What do you mean? Give me the hi hat." What? You, get, let me let me get my gangster to English dictionary out, and uh, oh oh, it means disrespectful. I get oh oh okay. Um, yeah, it, it it it's everybody is is trading uh in these you know in these verbal blows and it's it's just it's just great. I I I love it the same way um that I, I love the way that they do sort of like chill stoner dialogue for the dude in in uh Big Lebowski or the way
2: that they do language and true grit. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It's like and 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 we see it in even, I don't know, Blade Runner original one, or any of these movies, where their words are invented, and you totally get the context of it—you get what it means, you get the the sense of it. And it's if it's done in a way that's consistent with the world, you just go with it. Like, look at uh, Racing Arizona. Racing Arizona has a style of dialogue that's very different from this. It is very absurd, but everyone sticks to it. So it's not just one character who's all out there, and then everyone else kind of tries to play a different type of character. It's like no the tone of it is set up front. Everyone knows the world that they exist in and they just go with it. And and that's, what I think that this one does maybe with more of a serious thing grounding, but it still is the same. This is the sort of movie that we want to make and they just go for it. And everyone knows what type of movie they're in. And, uh, and, and I just love being part of that. Right. Uh,
0: I will say that same. So like, like you're saying there, Michael, um, uh, I think you get a good sense of the characters who are kind of consistent in the way they speak the dialogue they they kind of bring to it is very um representative of some of these very like unique characters especially some of them who have these like over the top personalities and I will say some of the exchanges some of them feel like some classic gangster movie kind of 1920s gangster bad guys um, I think one of the, the things for me as we went through it that and this is kind of maybe where I, I had some of those moments where, um, you know, I bumped up against against some of the writing was some of those like comedic or absurdist elements as we go through the movie. So for me, just thinking about one of the ones that stuck out was um, when Johnny Casper's kid comes in. Uh, and he like smacks him or whatever. And you're like, is this supposed to be funny? I don't know what this is. And it doesn't seem serious enough. Cause it seems like they're playing it for laughs, but it also for me at points kind of um, rubbed up against what I felt was like the kind of like or the 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 stakes that seem to be going on in this movie uh where it's like all right you know tom's uh playing for keeps he's playing for his life here he's got it and then you got this these just kind of like weird moments and i'm i'm curious for both of you because I, I think for both of you they resonate a little bit more like there's a few scenes where you've got um when, you know, Tom's getting the lights punched out of him by Leo in the club. And then he runs into the woman who like screams and is like whacking on his head with a purse. And, um, you know, the, the warehouse scene where he's getting going to get beat up by the guys and he whacks the guy in the face with a chair. And then instead of it kind of turning into a fight, he's like, Jesus, Tom. And he like, just walks out of the room and walks back. Like there's parts that are like I think played for laughs and those didn't always land with me, but for your, for the two of you, are those moments where you're like, like laughing, like enjoying those kinds of things. Jesus, Tom is one of my favorite moments in the entire film.
1: I love that. That beat so much because it's, it shows that, that Tom really does feel like he is, he is in the fight of his life and he's going to to do what he needs to do no matter what. And the goon who knows Tom is like, it's just business. And so much of this, this, Story. A lot of it is it's it's just business. And so it's like, oh no, you did the thing that you're not supposed to do. It would have been okay if you had like tried to sucker punch me, but you hit me with the chair. Jesus, Tom. Now I gotta go out. I gotta get the other guy because I know you're just not gonna take the beating. And uh man. All right. This is this is how it's gonna go. And so it's this to me, it's it's so. Funny, and it gives that little bit of, um, a little bit of, of breath before the, uh, before the tension gets ratcheted right back up. And I think that that's what a lot of these little absurdist moments do is they give a moment of, of intake of breath or a little bit of, um, a, emotional gear shift so that the next beat can maybe, maybe hit a little bit harder. There's some that I'm not a huge fan of. I don't love the woman screaming in the club and hitting him with the, with the purse. Um, but I, I think that Casper's uh, son is hilarious and him coming in the, in the sailor suit in the first scene that you see him is so delightful to me. Uh, and it also, you know, when he smacks his kid in the, the second scene you see him in, it, it gives an insight into Casper himself. And I think that that's an important character
2: insight. I agree. That That's how I separate the two as well. I think that the the uh, the what you mentioned, the woman at, in Dale's club, that's a little bit like a Marx Brothers type of a scene. That's probably the one where I would say it doesn't fit in the way that everything else does. That uh, that scene when he's beaten up uh, and he, he hits uh, Frankie with a chair, that same with me, laugh out loud. I think it is so funny because the preparation, the seriousness, and how he just quietly walks away. And then this older, smaller uh, Italian guy comes and he's just like proceeds to beat the, the snot out of him. Like that to me is just, that is funny. That is all out funny. And and I couldn't agree with you more about just how these things can of helped you tell about... Uh, casper's character because then later when he gets into this thing around like look to be honest the dane mentioned we should do this we should double cross you but if we did that like you know where would we be because there are these principles there are ethics. these yeah, ethics that, yeah that to me like it it is so consistent but that one scene in the club and the hitting with the purse that probably is the one i would have said i com- completely okay without because it just totally doesn't fit quite the same it's a bit more farcical uh, but otherwise, for sure, I'm all in.
0: Yeah, it's it, it is interesting because I found there's uh, a few. I, I actually don't mind the one with the chair. It's just I found those those moments where they like I where they were playing for the laughter, laugh or the absurdity of that moment in the middle of what feels like a high stakes thing. You know, like uh, is Tom going to get like murdered by Leo in the middle of this club, and then you get this woman bonking on the head and like, oh. Ah! running around you're like oh that's a little weirdo uh you know um <laughs> hey is uh is leo going to escape this life or death uh, assault on him in his own home well good thing that his tommy gun has 14000 bullets in it and when you shoot the guy with it for like a minute straight he just jitterbugs all through the house firing his tommy gun there's a few moments where i'm just like ugh you know what? Nope.
1: I love the Tommy Gun Jitterbug and uh, I think that that is a solid contender for best death right up there with Brendan Gleeson in Bruges.
2: But 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 before before I leave that scene. That scene to me is like a masterclass mm-hmm. because the the setup with the music, the panning of the camera before you know what's going on, but then you realize what's happening because you hear the death throes. Uh you see the person laying there you see every step along the way that Leo goes through in terms of hey hang on and then he doesn't panic he just okay he even takes the time to put on his slippers and then everything about that is just perfect I, I don't even get distracted for a second about the the like you say the unlimited uh, ammo uh, perk that he must have picked up just before you know that happened but uh, I just think that it's like a perfect sequence so it's literally.
0: It's interesting to me because if, if you were to compare it against, say, the end of The Godfather, uh, where you have um, this uh, well-crafted series of murders going on to a piece of music and you're like, OK, for, for me, it's just the absurdity of um, those little bits and pieces that, again, for whatever reason – make me lose the stakes in the scene.
1: Okay. So I'll, two things there. Um, I would say that that is less like the end of the Godfather and more like the halfway point of the Godfather where, uh, there's, you know, a guy who gets riddled with a bazillion, uh, you know, a bazillion machine gun holes and then, you know, uh, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Right. Like that is, that to me is, is much more like this. And, and then also, whereas like the hat is kind of the the symbol of of Tom, I feel like the Tommy gun is the symbol of Leo. And it's less about him having kind of unlimited ammo. And it's more that we're seeing an extension of his character here that is just so brutal and uh, and so violent and so red hot. And that is what that bit of, of the scene that, and and him walking down the street, not getting hit by bullets and firing on the, uh, on the car. Just endlessly. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of that to me is much more about Leo and Leo's character rather than it is about the um, real physics of the world, if that makes
2: sense. But, but I think we had a little bit of this conversation before. Like, Think about a movie like In Bruges, or actually even the, the town itself, where we kind of had a hard time saying, what sort of movie is this? How do you market it? How do you classify it? Is this a gangster movie just because it's about gangsters? It's certainly not a gangster movie the way that Goodfellas is a gangster movie. It's not a, it's not a gangster movie the way that Scarface is a gangster movie. This is more like uh, a character movie about relationships between uh, all of these different characters that have to do with friendship and honor and love and all of this. It just happens to be set in a gangster setting. But how do you how do you market that? So you know, when they came out, no doubt people would have had the same type of challenge that you're talking about. Where how, how do I interpret this scene? How do I look at it? Um, what do I? How am I supposed to see this? Is it a comedy? Like what what is this thing? And walking away completely confounded
1: and and not only that but because this is the coen brothers third film and so at that point you don't have enough of a nerve uh you know to to be built up for it to be like oh it's a coen brothers film because as different as a coen brothers film as this feels it still feels very much like a coen brothers film to me
0: yeah uh, i i think you can definitely draw the um you know the the connect the dots down to other pieces of work and, uh, you know, that they do later, including, you know, you've got Fargo and No Country uh, for Old Men, uh, which are both crime, you know, movies of very different flavors, uh, but I I can definitely see the, you know, the, the the ancestry or the lineage or whatever you want to call it, you know, going back to this film. Um, I think one of the interesting points that Michael kind of touched on is this movie opens with that, um, you know, meeting between uh, Leo and Johnny Casper. Uh, I mean, Johnny Casper's laying out, you know what this movie is kind of about right like ethics you know like who can you trust and like what what, who can you really trust if you can't trust somebody and you know all all that kind of stuff so i mean i I, i'm interested what you know both of your kind of take on this thing about like ethics and friendship and loyalty and these kind of things like is this a movie that thinks at least in this setting that there is friendship and loyalty and ethics I mean, certainly, it
1: seems that it thinks that there's love, and I think that 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 is kind of at the core of this film—not the love between uh, Tom and Verna, but the the love between Tom and and Leo—that seems to really underscore the whole story um, for me that this is a, a tragic love story that that Tom does all of these things for the person he loves to uh, make sure that they're okay in the end and he is left with nothing uh, but his hat and that's kind of a beautiful thing
2: I, I think almost with the exception of one character Everyone follows their own code and they have certain things that they stick with. Even the Dane does it because he has this crazy thing. He probably could have cheated Caspar so many times, never did. Crazy protective because of his special relationship with uh, Mink. Um, everyone's following something except, I was going to say, for Bernie. Except for He Bernie. seems to have no yeah. loyalty, nothing. is just about him. Uh, and everything is transactional. In nature, But everyone else has something that they follow and they seem to be doing it really, really well. Like Casper as well. He is crazy. He's got a lot of bizarre values, but he has this thing very similar to, to in Bruce about like, look, rules are rules. You got to stick to your principles. If you don't have that, then what do you have? Uh, and, it, and it's I think it makes him much more believable as a character.
0: Yeah, I, I'll say Johnny Casper is my favorite character in. The movie. I think he's great. I think he, for me, he's the one who is appropriately funny, but also like menacing and like I'm like, yeah, I love I love Johnny Casper, and you know I found, found he was probably for me one of the better, more fleshed out characters. So I, I really enjoyed John Polito in this movie. I think
2: he's and, and and also I was thinking about that when uh, when Evan was talking about Leo. I actually think that uh, Casper is a much scarier character because he's so you don't know. What's going to happen the next moment? You don't know which version of him is going to show up. Leo is Leo. He's super consistent. He's he he doesn't really allow himself to completely explode, even when he, you know, punches out um, uh, Tom. Like he doesn't really do it with that type of rage. But when Casper does it, it's like okay, that that is someone to fear a hundred percent. And I think that that
1: actually ties back to that beat that that Chris talked to uh, earlier about Casper hitting his son, where you don't know what Casper you're going to get. And so Casper lashes out and then immediately is like, oh, what's the matter? Did somebody hit you? Oh, come on. And it's just like, oh, okay this this guy is scary. And in the death of the Dane, you, you know, you really you really see that happen again, where it's like, okay, he's just going to beat him to death with a, with a, a fire fireplace shovel. shovel. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oof. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, John Polito and Albert Finney, we kind of touched on as, as the two, you know, crime bosses in this movie who, who Gabriel Byrne is kind of caught between, um, maybe what we need to do is take a quick break. Uh, and on the other side, we can talk about some of the other performances from some of the other key folks in this movie. we're back. So, um, I mean the, the headliner, the leading man in this movie, Gabriel Byrne, uh, as Tom, um, I'm, I'm curious for both of you, like how, how does Gabriel Byrne land in that role of Tom, the kind of like right hand man, you know, guy who's whispering in everybody's ear to pit them against each other, you know, finding his way out of trouble. Like how does that, that role, um, you know, how does he land in that role for the two of you?
1: I mean, I think this is one of his best performances. I, I think he's I think he's excellent in this film. I think he brings a level of uh, intelligence and um, cruelty and um, sort of masculinity and and and, uh, and quietness, the, the contemplation that. I, I think is, is really, uh, difficult to balance. And I think that he does it beautifully. I, I, have got no notes on Gabriel Byrne, you know, every, every punch he takes, he, uh, he's, he's, he's given it, his, he's given it his all. Yeah.
2: I couldn't agree more. I, I think, I think this is the movie where I just said, this is someone I'm going to watch everything that he's in, um, The tiny things We 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 talked a little bit about the opening scene in this where he acts surprised. You can tell his surprise when Leo insists we're going to protect Bernie, but it's restrained. It is just enough that we see it, but he doesn't say, Hey, what do you mean? It's just like little things. He is so uh, constrained the, the entire movie, uh, and he's so, so held back; he can't express any emotion. He can't talk to anyone about what he actually feels. He, uh, he, he I, I don't know. I, I just love him in this performance. I couldn't. I read about the other people who were considered and they tried out. I can't see anyone else doing this as well as he did.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one for me because I found. Um, I mean, Michael you used the word constrained there, and that's kind of the way I felt like he was for a, a lot of the movie, where. Um, It's a little bit hard to get a read on him for most of the movie, which can make him feel a little bit... distanced, I guess from, uh, from you is like, he's hard to hang on to as the protagonist of the movie at times, because you're like, is this guy good? Is this guy bad? Is this guy happy? Is this guy mad? I'm making a Dr. Seuss poem without realizing it. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I think, I think that's, I think generally I liked it, but it was one of the performances I struggled with, as I kind of rewatched the movie of like, do I like this or do I wish there was more here? Because he, he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have the, the Johnny Casper, big swings, or the Leo big swings in kind of a emotion, right? Like he's always very um, level-headed and neutral, even as he's about to like, you know, be murdered by somebody or whatever. He's like, all right, well- I, Let's and see I, if I can I, talk my but, way out of this. And I think
1: that's great because it allows Johnny Casper to be so big and Leo to go big and uh Verna to go big and uh and boy oh boy is Bernie going to go big. And it all comes up against this inscrutable human. Mm-hmm. And that is that is Tom. That is that's who he's supposed to be.
2: I I think I also would agree with you a little bit more if it wasn't for that one scene when they go back into the woods. And when he's like, he's doing all the calculations in his head, he's trying to hold it together. And then it's like, he can't, and he just stops and he throws up. And that is where you know that this is is the limits of kind of like what he's able to do. And I think that 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 scene really adds to the complexity and the humanity of him. Uh, in, in a very, very good way.
0: Well, speaking of the woods, uh, I don't think you can think about Miller's crossing and the woods there without talking about John Turturro, uh, as Bernie, uh, and I mean, especially his scene in the woods, like he, he is putting it in overdrive, uh, for, for that scene. Um, I'm, I'm very curious for, but from both of you, like how, how impactful is that scene um, when, you know, Tom is, you know, charged with whacking Bernie out in the woods? Um,
2: like, w- what does that feel like after so many watches? I think it is still very powerful. Actually, maybe even more so. I think the first time I watched it, I think I probably thought I didn't know how to, to deal with it. It's very intense. It's so much. Uh, I think I, it's it's much more I don't know. Like, I think I can, I can see it now in a different way. And, and I think it is incredibly powerful and also sets the, the stage then for the, the later one. It's like, you know, what, what would you have done anyway if you caught up with me? Like, all I would have to do is just squirt a little bit and you would let me go. Like that thing later, I think that the the first scene is incredibly powerful and I buy it completely.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm with you, Michael, that, that, that scene, a man, truly pleading for his life, look inside your heart. You know, it's, it's one of the few genuine moments I feel like we get from Bernie. Um, and then to juxtapose that with when he starts trying to blackmail, um, Tom and it's just the, the difference in those two performances and the, the, uh, the, the way that, uh, that he sort of goes from, from being this man just terrified for his, his life to like, Oh, I've got the upper hand now. Uh, I'm going to try to, to, you know, squeeze you now, Tom, it, to me, it is, it is, uh, of, equal performance of with like uh lemon in Glengarry Glen Ross in those in those peaks and valleys. I, I just I really think that it is a, a, a quality performance.
0: I I will say too it's uh like I I agree I think you know it's easy to see um how the Cohen brothers wind up working with him a bunch of times after this. In fact this is the first time they worked with a bunch of people. Um so not just um him but also Steve Buscemi who winds up being in a number of their movies, John Polito who winds up being in a bunch of their movies. Um and like yeah his performance is great and and to that point too uh when Um, you know Tom tricks him again towards the end or whatever and you see him go back to that pleading you know you you can understand where you're like we know what happens now if you get out of this like you can't be trusted anymore like I did you assaulted once you betrayed me like you know Tom doesn't really have any options at the end right like yeah you were very persuasive and yet sorry buddy Um, I will say that the uh, whole Bernie storyline through there, though, is one of the things that for me gets a little bit tricky. And I think some of the things that um, were leveled as criticisms about this movie uh, was that, that the storyline is a little bit, um, you know, overly complicated. The The New York Times review from, from Vincent Camby uh, said something. Like, so it said, uh, the most mysterious thing about this movie is how a movie with such a simple narrative can often be so difficult to follow. And I, I will say that for me, um, especially on the first watch, um, it is a relatively straightforward thing, but I did find myself at a number of points getting a little bit lost of like, Who's, who's he talking to on the phone about who there's a lot of stuff happening off screen about characters who you haven't met or don't know very well. A lot of talk about Mink, who's Steve Buscemi's character, who you meet for like 20 seconds or something in the lobby of a, of a, the, the, the parlor or whatever. That's Leo's play. Like, so there's a lot that goes on for me where I found it was very easy on a first watch to be like, who, what, who are they talking about? What's going on? Um, I'm guessing you guys don't find that, but uh, like, is that something that you can, uh, you know, understand how people could get lost on this? Or did you find it was like, no, I get it. It's pretty easy. I mean,
1: you know, it's, is the story overly complicated in a lot of questions? It's like a, a lot of ways. It's like asking, is a chess match overly complicated? Because this is this is Tom maneuvering pieces all over the place and trying to get everything lined up for Checkmate. And we, even we as the audience don't know what's going on. I mean, Tom himself is like, do you know why you do the things you do at the end? And I think that, that yes, it's a movie that benefits uh, for rewatching uh, and rewards rewatching. And that's, wonderful. I think it's great when films reward rewatching, but to me in terms of like, is it overly complicated? No, we're, we're watching, we're watching a chess game. And sometimes those moves aren't clear until three moves down the line. And I'm okay with that because everything is so compelling in this film to me. How about you, Michael? Michael,
2: It's interesting, right? Like, I I, I think I sort of agree with you, Evan, but I'm going to say the, it is complicated, but the criticism that someone would give, it's not the same as a movie like Christopher Nolan's Tenet. You can say it's overly complicated and understand anything going on with the time mechanism and all this. This is complicated because like you say, like he's reacting in the moment. He doesn't have a plan going into it. It's just like, I think that you're meaning Leo. I think that you're, you protecting Bernie is going to get us all into to trouble. And it's going to get you, Leo, into trouble, who I care about. It's going to get Bernie into trouble. It's going to get this and that. And at every step along the way, he has to react and readjust and improvise and make it seem like he knows what he's doing, and he never does. So I think it is complicated in that way. Some of the things happening were Trickier, ben, like the character names and who's betting on what you know, fight or horse or that. But I think a good chunk of that is a reflection of like, just he himself doesn't really know uh, what's going on. And so the, the thing around chess is it's not really just chess because, you know, chess, you would think, well, I'm the, the, the player. I'm going to try to defeat you. It's more like chess from the uh, queen's perspective. Hmm. He is there trying to protect the king, but he's also a, a, a player, a, a piece in the game itself. So it's kind of like you have to balance all of these things in a way that wouldn't be the case. If you were just completely nihilistic, you know, it's me against the world, I'll maneuver, I'll try to manipulate everyone. That would be straightforward. Then you just do whatever you need to do to survive, but he needs to also protect these other characters, these other pieces uh, on the chessboard. And I think that, that just that's consistent with the story. Complex, yes, but it's consistent with his character.
1: And I think that to your point, Michael, there is one other queen on that board. And that, of course, is the character of Verna, uh, played by Marcia Gay Harden, um, who I think delivers a really excellent performance. I mean, there to me, there are, are no real weak performances in this film. So I will continue to say, you know, delivers an excellent performance. I really like her, her sort of Characterization of of Verna and the how tough she is and how um, real she feels and that she's in it to protect her brother and that's what she's trying to do and she has a very clear uh, goal in in what she's doing and uh, you know she is not going to be intimidated uh, by anyone except maybe the Dane.
0: I found Marsha Gay Harden as Verna was uh, good. Like I, to, kind of to your point, Evan, I don't really think there's like poor performances in in this movie. Um, I found um, Verna's relationship with um, Tom and with Leo the the part where I was left my head scratching a little bit because I mean, number one, you never really see Verna with Leo until the end of the movie. Um, and so, um, you know, like there, there's a few head scratcher and that's kind of where it's like a little bit of the head scratcher, um, complexity for me. It's not necessarily in the story that they're telling so much as like, well, you never actually see Leo and Verna together. I don't know if they're actually, you know, actually into each other. Cause Leo seems to be kind of somewhat, even though he's like, yeah, maybe she's playing me. I don't know. Um, And a little bit similarly with Tom too, like you never really get a read on what the actual relationship for these people is, if it is real or if it's not. And I don't know what to make of that. And I think that's where some of the complexity comes in for me at times where you're like, I'm not sure where to put my thumb down on these things, whether it's real or they're just playing each other or whatever. Uh, And I think that's where it got a little bit tricky for me at
2: points. I think you can look at it two ways. One is that, does not really matter in the end uh, about the, the complexity? Because they, they all have the reasons for doing things. She really is generally trying to take care of um, Bernie. She she's very clear about it. She's saying like like look, this is my brother. I, I'm going to protect him. Leo really wants to have someone just in his life, and he's willing to overlook a bunch of things. Um, and and the other side is this thing around like the also. What choice do they have? Tom, I think, really genuinely cares about Verna, but he can't say it. He can't say it partly because, you know, his loyalty and friendship with uh, Leo. And he also, I think, there's something about him where he, he can't express that to to her. It's a vulnerability thing. There's, so he can't admit it. Um, so this kind of, like, they're all held back. And, and what I like about this movie is, like I think it's not one or the other. I think that Verna can get take advantage of Leon to some degree for the protection, but also really enjoy the stability and the relationship. Like, I think they can be both. Um, and, and like I said, does it matter in the end. I don't think that's the central part of the story, but it is kind of like that underlying thing that just explains why it's so hard for them to do anything. You know, it's not just all about, I'm going to take my revenge and you kill a person because it's like, yeah, but I also have this other person. And they struggle with that throughout.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one for me because I, I think you know where I I had some of the issues with um, like I was saying like the the like okay are these relationships real like for me it's a little bit in that beginning where Tom um, you know as as he's trying to get things going and like don't trust Verna and Tom outs himself uh, to Leo about his relationship with Verna which then kind of sets off this chain of events um like there's a few like that was a little bit of a head scratcher to me of like why would like tom's a clever guy who's playing people against each other for the entire movie and yet he's just like no no because i'm sleeping with her like oh 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 um and there's a few of those things throughout the movie where i was like hmm i'm not sure i a hundred percent like believe that so like at various points where it's like okay the gangsters didn't check that um tom had killed bernie and then they go back in the woods and they find a body and they're like oh that must be bernie i guess um and you know there's a number of those beats where i was just like hmm i'm not i'm not sure about that and i'm like uh, it's okay but i'm not sure about that and i i, I don't know it didn't have a hundred percent by for me all, all the way through on on some of those, and that's why I struggled a little bit throughout.
1: That's fascinating to me because I think that that Tom. So so the two things there. I mean, one Tom telling Leo that not to trust Verna because he is the one sleeping with her um, is a, a real last ditch effort for Tom. Tom is trying to prevent a, a gang war and. Uh, because he he feels like Leo will likely lose it, uh, that Casper has become too strong, and that is the the one thing that is preventing this gang war just from from uh, stopping is the fact that Leo refuses to uh, you know back down because he he's going to protect Bernie no matter what and and that's because of Verna and if if Leo and Verna split then he can disavow Bernie and then everything can go back to sort of status quo ish and and so Tom is taking that full risk that, that to me was this big character moment of he is willing to put himself fully on the line here for to make sure that that Leo keeps his position of power
2: and i couldn't agree more like the 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 way that you say it's like it is not a flippant move it's not a light move that he makes because it's a big lead up to it it's like you know i have never asked you for anything you have to trust me on this and if you can't then to 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 hell with you and it's only after that that he says that night when you came she was with me that is exactly what you say like that's what he's willing to do to protect leo and even earlier, he says that, like, you know, think about what um, protecting Bernie will benefit uh, you and how much it will cost uh, to kind of, like, uh, go go to war with Casper. So I, I think that that is at the heart of it. It's like, it's a huge step for him to to do that. And actually, it's consistent with him as a character, I think, and not, not strange at all.
1: Yeah, and insofar as, you know, the body in the woods, I mean yeah, sure. The, the mobsters don't walk out with them because they're like, they're a couple of dumb mooks, you know, they're just like, they're, they're schlubs, they're schnooks. They're not going anywhere. Right. And, uh, and we find out that that body that is dressed the same way that, uh, that uh, Bernie was dressed when they went into the woods was, was, was uh, mink, right? Like he, like Bernie took him out into the woods and, and and murdered him and shot him in the face so that that he was he was leaving the the body so that people would believe that he was dead. Uh, so you know his own sort of like uh, tying up with loose ends benefits Tom.
0: Yeah, well, speaking of uh, you know people being murdered in the woods, probably one of the uh, most notable. Uh, scenes or shots in this movie uh is that shot where you've got that um you know long long view out towards uh Tom as he's you know about to uh you know execute Bernie uh out in the woods and and the thing for me is you know this is a movie that definitely uh, looks great. As much as I don't love the story and the characters in this movie a ton, I do enjoy the way this movie looks an awful lot. Uh, and the the neat thing is, you know, this is the third movie that the Coen brothers made with uh, Barry Sonnenfeld. Um, and like, it, it looks great.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it looks fantastic. And it's, it's very different than Barry Sonnenfeld's standard kind of look he he tends to use a lot of of wide angle lenses and is very frenetic with his camera um, the camera is a character in in a lot of um his work and this one with the exception of of just a couple little shots um you know one that comes to mind is is uh uh, uh sort of flip around that goes from Tom to, uh, the bartender in, uh, in Leo's club. This is a, uh, a, a movie that is shot with, you know, long lens, um, really like carefully crafted, uh, shots that, uh, that are really, um, giving a, just this really beautiful, beautiful look to the movie and, and one of my favorite things in in the using of these long lenses that give this incredible depth of of, of focus and, and depth of field um, is that that scene that we talked about earlier, where the the introduction of of Tom, um, where. Leo is in the foreground of the shot and he is in focus and Tom is just a bit out of focus in the background. And Leo even like looks to him and he's, you know, for, for advice kind of thing. And he's still like, and the camera doesn't, doesn't um, focus pull to, to make Tom in focus. He stays in that kind of little bit of, of soft focus. And it's like, Oh, this is a guy who is in the background and this is what he is going to do like he is a guy in the background and that's what he does he's a, a guy who does things from the background and I was like oh that that is such a great way of 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 telling us visually who this guy is the moment that we meet him um, yeah I mean that this film's just it's shot so beautifully
2: I also think it's so it- I was very impressed that there's several scenes where you have dialogue, but the camera stays on the one person and doesn't constantly, mm-hmm. you know, swap back and forth. There's a real patience in it to kind of show what is that person going through in this dialogue? What, what are their reactions? What What's their thought process? Um, and, and in smart use of colors as well, because it's a pretty muted thing. Uh, it's not, terribly lit with, you know, sunlight and, and neon, it's a pretty muted thing. So when they do use colors, it kind of feels um, like it it has meaning to it, but no, for sure. Like I I think that the camera work and and the positioning of scenes, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie.
0: Yeah. There's, there's a number of um, scenes too, where the, the way that the, the film, um, the scene is shot uh, is, Quite unique too. So as much as you know, Evan, you were talking about the the typical way that Barry Sonnenfeld and the Cohen brothers had kind of done stuff, um, like in So in Raising Arizona, to your point, that frenetic camera where like instead of a zoom in, you can feel the camera be thrust into somebody's face uh, and it's being done at, from these weird places like, you know, very close to the ground, under a bed, or under a car or whatever. You're like, OK, this is weird. I'm seeing things from this weird place, but it's kind of adding this weird extra character. I think the thing that's unique in this movie is, um, you know, some of the shots that are shot from like right down on the ground. Uh, Like when um, they're in the warehouse and Tom's going to get beat up and you get this interesting perspective of the goon walking in, but the shots done from the floor. So you get this interesting perspective or as they follow the, um, you know, the gangster's feet as they're headed towards Leo's bedroom. And it's kind of following them along the ground rather than, um, you know, this their bodies or their torsos or whatever, watching them get closer. Um, even in Leo's bedroom uh, in that scene, when it's shot from basically the chandelier down, uh, there's a lot of really cool uh, perspectives that get brought into this. Um, you know, where you might typically see in that Bernie and Tom scene, where Tom's going to, you know, execute him, you might typically see that more from, a more kind of pushed in view or over somebody's shoulder with, you know, Bernie down on his knees or something, but instead you get it from a distance, uh, and this really like wide view of that scene. So it's, it's really interesting to see the, um, uh, you know, how you might normally expect some of these scenes to be shot of menacing figures moving down a hallway. They might be shadowy, but like, instead you get their feet uh, or, you know, you know, uh, just the, how, how unique that style is. And I mean, like Barry Sonnenfeld, just to put it in context too, he hadn't just been working with the Coen brothers, but he'd just come off shooting uh big when Harry met Sally and misery, uh, which, oh, Rob you know, Reiner, friend of the show. There you go. Right. Um, and so, I mean, he, he is on this terrific run and starts his, you know, directing career um, basically, basically, after this, that's why he doesn't do any more films with the, uh, Coen brothers. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there, there are a lot of elements, um, which, you know, lend credibility to how this movie looks and feels besides just the framing and the way it's shot, which is great. And the way that the, you know, punches up certain colors, there's obviously a lot of green in this movie. Uh, but I mean, a lot of the set designs, we talked about how it was shot, uh, in New Orleans because it gave that sense of, you know, 1920s, uh, big East Coastish city, I don't know that we ever really know where this is supposed to take i don't place. I don't think we do yeah um but it's definitely got a lot of stuff that you know looks the part, including a lot of the the sets uh in this movie, yeah, you know i mean it, it along with with some of the
1: blowback that this that this movie got originally from its sort of complicated story. Um, You know, I, I pulled a quote of Roger Ebert saying, um, you know, this doesn't look like a gangster movie. It looks like a commercial intended to look like a gangster movie. Um, And I, I I just, I don't agree. Like I, I feel like part of what's so wonderful about this film is that, It's so sumptuous in the way that that it looks and the the way that the costumes are designed. And it it's sort of maybe this is sort of um, one of those things that that resonates more today in kind of like let's call it like a post Mad Men world where it's just like there is that that style of like, just like really great sets and furniture and costumes, uh, and well-tailored suits can, can really, um, elevate something. So I see that as a plus rather than, uh, than a negative, but I, I, I'm curious about what y'all have to say to that.
2: So uh, two points. The first one is I've never heard you say y'all before today. So there clearly must be an influence from, from the movie. The second thing is I think there's nothing about this. There's nothing about this movie that requires me to know where it takes place. Like there's nothing that depends on it. So um, it could be anywhere. And I think that's actually a, a, a feature and not a, not a bug. I think it is great that it's so generic. It's just, it's a town it's not even a huge town. They don't show massive monuments, buildings. It's just it's a city and uh, and it's got woods around it. Okay, that's all I need to know. And and I was so happy to go along with that. Like compared to if it's something that kind of supposed to be at this big particular city in a particular point of time, and then you criticize it because it's oh, that's not realistic because that's not what happened. Uh, here I think the fact that it's so anonymous is actually uh, it, it works in its favor instead of the other way around.
0: It's interesting. I I took that because um, I read that same uh, Roger Ebert quote about it feeling more like a, a commercial for, you know, gangster movies. I didn't take that to mean like uh, literally the way it looks so much as like the the tone of the movie. And I think that's where I'm just like, something didn't quite feel right to me. And I, you know, we kind of been talking about a bunch of reasons why, where I'm like, it feels like they're doing a, like pretending to do a gangster movie rather than doing a gangster movie. So it felt a little bit off. So I can kind of get that one for me, the some, a lot of the set design was great at times. I was like, but would Tom really live in a place that big? Cause his apartment is huge. Well, you know uh, that apartments were a lot bigger back then,
1: right? I mean, that's <laughs> just, nobody was living in uh, you, you were either living in like boarding
2: houses, uh, nobody was living in like micro condos. And he's the number two guy to the number one guy. That's so true. if anyone's gonna have a big apartment, it's gonna be it's gonna be him.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I found the same thing with Leo's office too, where it was the like, all right, he's got a massive office that you would think is like a CEO's office upstairs at a nineteen twenties Prohibition era club. I'm like, okay. I but mean it's he, a beautiful he, office. Yeah, Does it feel I mean, he, right? He is a
1: CEO though, right? Like he's, he's the crime and executive officer. He's, he he's the guy who brings the mayor and the Chief police exploitation center. officer. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, uh, there like, you go. yeah, like, of course he's the, he's the the guy who is, is calling the shots and it, it makes perfect sense to me The you know, especially when you see Casper who is like supposed to be, you know, not as big uh, and he's got this huge mansion and with fireplaces in the study where they, you know, with readily available things to uh, beat henchmen to death with. So, uh,
0: yeah, I'll buy that. It's an important note to to keep if anybody is hoping to be a 1920s crime boss, that if you are buying, you know, fireplace accessories, make sure all of them are good for beating your henchmen to death with. Um, so I'm interested for both of you. I mean, I think we already kind of talked about it up front. Uh, This, this was a movie that came out two weeks, not even two weeks uh, after Goodfellas. Um, Like, is that the biggest thing that you think kind of makes the, the traction of this movie uh, sputter out? Or do you think there's something else that's feeding into, you know, why this movie um, wasn't more successful?
1: And it's a good question. Like, you've got, I mean, you've got good fellas. Um, I don't know how much advertising and promotion was put into this film at the time as well. So, um, that could have been a factor. Um, there's, you know, also the, the fact that the Coen brothers are relatively unknown ish at that time. It's not a big movie. Like, again, it's like a $14 million budget. So it's it's not got a whole lot um, to kind of grab onto, I guess. Uh, and and it didn't get amazing reviews. It's sort of like great performances, complicated story. Um, so, you know, they just... There feels like there's a number of different factors that are coming in here to sort of just kind of make it
2: kind of flatline a little bit. I think it is such a tricky challenge because it's like a movie like this. You either have to mislead people to make it seem like something it's not to get them into the theater, in which case you might get people in an opening weekend, but they're all going to come back and say, this is not at all what I expected or you try to be super accurate in your your uh, trailers about what it is and you're not going to get anyone in because it's like like you said competing with with the the movies at the time like h- how would that possibly survive and i keep thinking about this thing that we talked about with in bruges where you have these posters that say shoot first sightsee later and you go like how how is that possibly an, an accurate depiction of what this movie is like you're trying to come up with some clever line to capture a movie like this that is so complex and so layered i have no idea what you would do so i i think a lot of it is just how the heck would you even package and market something like this um, because you either win on opening day you get more people in and then you risk them walking and being like i don't know what the heck this was or vice versa
0: yeah it's it's an interesting one right like you, you know evan kind of touched on it where you've got um you know newish directors uh who have a little bit of you know rep or whatever, but it's not like Raising Arizona made $200 million or something like that. Uh, You know, and then you're going up against, uh, you know, Martin Scorsese with Robert De Niro and whatever. But, you know, like, um, uh, and also maybe, I don't know how much of it would be different if maybe we're doing like, um, like the Untouchables where you're like, oh, you know, it's uh, Al Capone and like maybe more reputable names or whatever, like names that people would know as opposed to like, 1920s crime guys. And you're like, Oh, okay. You know, like I, again, you know, I like Gabriel Byrne, who that? I don't know. Who's this guy. Um, I mean, I, I think there's just a lot of those kind of like, not quite as, you know, well known as, and you go across like director actor, uh, topic and a, a bunch of those things where I can see, you know, as those add up, you're like, yeah, I'll skip it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like certainly not a movie that I, Disliked, um, but it's it's an interesting one for me, especially going and knowing that both of you were, uh, you know, very much enamored with this movie. Where I was like, I thought it was fine. I just had a lot of spots where it didn't land for me. Um, I'm I'm likely not going to be revisiting this movie. I don't think that's a surprise. I thought it was all right, but I'm not going to come back to it. But I'm guessing both of you are going to be coming back to this at some point before too long.
1: Oh heck yeah. I am thrilled that I watched it again and it made me go like oh man this is this is a great movie um you know Tanya's never seen it so um you know I'm I'm happy to sit down and and watch it with her you know even even in the next couple of weeks
2: same here I, w- I would be watch it anytime it just it makes me happy there's so many things um, that I'd like to just watch again and see how it's done, the story, how it plays out. So yes, I, I will definitely come back to this. Well, maybe what we'll
0: have to do is uh, when we figure out what month we're going to do uh, Coen Brothers month in uh, and stack them up, if we can't find enough Coen Brothers movies that we haven't seen, we'll have to like watch this again and see if I get it better uh, that time when we watch it. And am we're like, Chris, how did you not get this the first time how did you not get this yeah and i'm like still no don't like (laughs) it nope don't think so um that is probably a good place to call it i think uh so that is what we thought about uh miller's crossing um so if you had different thoughts about this movie if you feel like I have double crossed you uh, and want to come after me well you can find us on Twitter uh, at how did you miss this that's H D Y M T underscore pod Uh, and while you are there you can take a look at some of the stuff that we're planning on watching that we have watched send us questions thoughts and hey if there's a movie that you might have missed that you want us to take a look at let us know Uh, if you enjoy what we're doing uh, do us a favor take a second rate review subscribe or whatever other magic you can work wherever you happen to be listening to this Uh, and we'll be back next week when we're going to be watching Harold and Maude and we're going to see whether this cult classic is worth living for or whether this is a movie that should stay missed. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you then.